0: In its 30 years and counting, the news magazine show Dateline has created an unbeatable formula for true crime. Over the course of an episode, you hear a mystery that sounds stranger than fiction. The towns. I mean, they sound out of a pulp novel.
1: It began in a little town in Missouri, a place called Troy, where people can live in what feels like country and still spend their days working an hour away in St. Louis.
0: Feeding you details, you can almost see it.
1: Little off Highway H, there's a dead-end street called Sumac Drive. And on that street, there's a house nestled right on the corner.
0: And the characters. They're accused of heinous things. But how could that be true because they're so unassuming? She's the doting next-door neighbor, the soccer mom, or your old co-worker.
1: It was during that second marriage that Pam struck up a friendship with a part-time disc jockey named Betsy Faria. Betsy and Pam met while working together at State Farm Insurance.
0: She couldn't possibly do it. Or could she? That, or could she, that is Dateline. Keith Morrison is always gently probing questioning if what we know is what we really know. And teases that he might know a little more than you, but you gotta stick around to hear about it. It's a template that's so reliable, it's almost comforting.
1: Sometimes people tell me they fall asleep to it.
0: That is the aforementioned Keith Morrison, the legend of true crime primetime.
1: I'm a correspondent at Dateline NBC have been for, what, 26 years now? Something like that? And have been around in television for over half a century.
0: I love all the Dateline journalists. Lester, Josh, Andrea, Dennis, I thank you for your service. But Keith, oh, Keith holds a special place in my heart. The way he weaves a tale, it's almost like a novel.
1: It's not a fairy tale. It's not Agatha Christie, although it may be structured in a similar way that she tells her stories. But these are real people, and you can hurt them, and you don't want to hurt them.
0: I feel like he's an old-timey detective, and he's bringing me along for the ride, letting me parse from the clues with him. Keith has this effect on people. It's not just me. At this year's Crime Con, when he walked into the room, he got a standing ovation. You'd think the 74 year old Silver Fox was Harry Styles walking on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. Morrison's fans are even famous. Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell watch Dateline. Even momager Kris Jenner likes to unwind with the show. Bill Hader is such a fan that he impersonated Morrison on SNL.
1: Tell me, did killing him get your rocks off?
2: No, you know, huh? I'm not weird like that.
0: Not even a little.
2: Ah, what the heck, it got me off a little. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it was Hater who came up with that pesky DNA. I never said it, but but after it became a meme, I kind of began using the word that pesky this and pesky that. Very old-fashioned word, but I kind of like it.
0: I mean, I like it too, and now I can get a T-shirt with him saying it. You can also get a life size cardboard cutout of Keith. There's mugs and shirts emblazoned with his iconic diction. There's something about Keith, about the way he tells a story. It's simple, it's earnest, but oh so tantalizing. There's like little
3: Keithisms that are like, it was going to be a great day.
1: Or was it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not only did Dateline pioneer this compelling novella style of storytelling, but it also showed you how you could tell these stories with journalistic rigor.
1: You can alter the course of their lives in ways you would never intended to do, so it requires caution.
0: Keith Morrison isn't a part of his stories. We're not hearing him call his producer from a closet on the road. He lets his sources take the lead. He doesn't throw in his feelings about the case, you know, he keeps his distance. But his fans were not so good at that. The more compelling these narratives, the more they feel like novels, they feel like stories. They simply don't feel real. The subjects of these stories, now they can easily morph into celebrities. A very strange sort of celebrity, but celebrities nonetheless. We saw it at CrimeCon. Keith Morrison and the Dateline team were on one panel, whereas exonerated Russ Faria and his defense attorney, Joel Schwartz, hosted a thing about Pam discussion, named after the podcast that featured his wife, Betsy's murder. Could that be more meta? That's what this episode is about how Dateline's addicting formula isn't just consumed as journalism, it's consumed as entertainment. And what does our creepy pastime say about us? From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and this is Spectacle True Crime. Dateline is synonymous with true crime, but the show wasn't always that way. Morrison remembers when he came to Dateline in 1995. He had experience reporting stories for NBC Nightly News and The Today Show, and he anchored a national show back home in Canada.
1: I was ready for a change, and um, I thought it'd be great to get into something where you could get your teeth into a story and spend some time in it.
0: Dateline was a typical news magazine show, It had four or five stories in an hour-long episode. All kinds of stuff, from profiles to politics and everything in between, competing with the likes of CBS Sunday Morning or 60 Minutes.
1: But what we discovered along the way was when we did a crime story, the numbers would go whoop, and people were paying attention. So we made longer crime stories, and it worked even better. And it's gone from there.
0: Keith wasn't immediately stoked on the idea of leaning into true crime full force.
1: And at the beginning, sometimes I think, why are we doing this one? Let's do something else. But eventually, people want to tell their stories. They want to talk about their loved one that maybe was killed. It's cathartic in some ways. It's always a surprise to me when it is to people, but it is.
0: Even though it can feel voyeuristic to some, to the people impacted by these crimes, it's a service. There's also a distance between Keith and the subjects. Sure, he does go in the field and sit down face-to-face with folks, but he's not a part of the story. But there's a first time for everything, isn't there? (laughs) Sorry, that was just me trying to channel my inner Keith Morrison. Morrison never intended to become part of the story, but then the murder of Betsy Faria came around. Betsy was stabbed to death in her home. When Dateline jumped on the story, her husband was currently serving a life sentence for her murder.
1: I remember my first encounter with it was when I met Russ Faria in prison, the man who was convicted of killing his wife, Betsy, and. Uh, talked to him and talked to his lawyer and realized something was certainly amiss here.
0: Dateline producers were doing what they do reporting the story, calling sources, knocking on doors. But one source in particular, now she seemed evasive, and let's just say things started to get a little weird. If you're not familiar with the thing about Pam, you know, the Dateline episodes, spoiler alert, there's a few, or the podcast or the series starring Renee Zellweger, my producer, Joanna Clay, and I will give you all the basics.
3: So it's shortly after Thanksgiving 2013 when a Dateline producer, her name is Kathy Singer, gets these messages.
0: And so it's these messages about Russ Faria and him, you know, allegedly killing his wife. And at this point, Russ had already been convicted and was in prison. Right.
3: So her bosses ask her, you know, hey, can you look into this?
0: So Kathy, of course, reaches out to Russ as attorney, Joel Schwartz. And initially, which I find, I kind of get how she felt this way, but Kathy was skeptical of Joel, the attorney, because he was absolutely convinced that Russ was innocent.
3: Totally. But something that stuck out to Kathy was that Joel had an idea of mind of who did it. It wasn't just that he thought Russ was innocent, it was that he actually knew who did it. And so this really piqued Kathy's curiosity and so she gets in the car, drives 5 hours from Chicago to Troy, Missouri, where this happened, and she's doing, you know, what she does best. She's knocking on doors and she's starting to learn that the story isn't as straightforward as it appeared.
0: And part of that has to do a lot with, you know, even though Russ was convicted, the evidence tying him to the scene of the crime was circumstantial at best. He had an alibi. He, there were witnesses to back up where he was, receipts to prove, receipts from Arby's to prove that he was in the drive-thru at a very specific time. There, like, literally wasn't time for him to commit this murder. And then, on top of all of that... There was this woman, Pam.
3: Yes. In the earliest Dateline episode, because they did it before the podcast, we learn of Pam Hupp as kind of an ancillary character. They don't speak to her, but they hear that she is a close friend of Betsy Faria, and they had worked together. But what stands out, the key detail in the description of Pam Hupp is that she was the last person to see Betsy. And, curiously, four days before her murder, she had Betsy make her the beneficiary of her life insurance policy.
0: And, you know, that's pretty suspicious because Betsy has children. She had a husband. She, you know, had a living parent, her mom. So it was like, why skip over all these people and go to Pam?
1: But why Pam? Why would Betsy choose her?
4: She's been on the record saying that Betsy wanted her to have the money so that she could help her daughters out when they needed it. And she was afraid that Russ, in his grief, would just spend too much money, especially on the daughters.
1: Ah, yes, the spendthrift husband. That's how Pam explained it.
4: And while
3: Dateline is kind of peeling back the curtain on this case, Pam gets nervous. Keith told me about it.
1: But as we did more stories about it and law enforcement attention began to be focused on Pam Hop, She, quite naturally, was a little bit, I think, resentful of, of the coverage we gave it and tried to arrange to, well, she impersonated a Dateline producer in order to try to find somebody she could take advantage of and put the blame back on Russ Faria.
0: In this moment, Pam, as she is spiraling, as her plans aren't panning out as she had thought, I just have to reiterate how wild this whole thing is. So Pam picks up this dude, Lewis, on the side of the road, saying she's Kathy, the Dateline producer, and that she needs him to, you know, read something for the show, which already is very shady. She'll pay him in cash. But ultimately, her main idea was simply to find a body of victim to kill and frame it on Russ to try to clear her name.
3: Pam ends up, no pun intended, shooting herself in the foot. I think it was the wise Bethany Frankel who once said the cover-up is worse than the crime. (laughs) So Pam ends up being, you know, the prime suspect in this guy's murder. And it also kind of changes the way the community is looking at the murder of Betsy Faria. Because this idea of Pam being a killer, well, it's not far-fetched anymore.
0: And, you know, to the outside viewer and to Kathy and the team at Dateline who started digging into this, it's wild that Pam was not taken seriously as a suspect initially for Betsy's murder. And now for Lewis, things were sort of clicking into place finally. And people were starting to see, oh, Pam isn't the regular woman who drinks big gulps. There's something lurking beneath the surface.
3: Yeah, I don't think Keith or Kathy had any idea of how much of a role Dateline would play in the case they're reporting on how the DA handled the murder of Betsy Faria. Well, it added some heat.
1: And, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily just the program. The, there were all kinds of people involved in that one. And the driving force was a remarkably good defense attorney who really managed to turn that ship around.
0: So Joel Schwartz is super handsome, charismatic from my home city, St. Louis, and very successful. And he was sort of the big shot attorney that came to Troy to help Russ, which also put a bad taste in certain people's mouths because, you know, he's an outsider coming in.
3: Right. He had represented Russ in the first trial when Russ was convicted in 2013. But after all this media coverage about the case, you know, including all the Dateline coverage— It exposed some issues, including an inappropriate relationship between the DA and law enforcement. And so, to just make a long story short, Joel eventually gets Russ a retrial.
1: Joel started preparing for a second trial. And that's when he found more things that troubled him.
0: And at this retrial, he was able to sort of cobble together evidence that was, I mean, for lack of a better term, sort of concealed during the initial trial and sort of present Pam as the alternate suspect against Russ. So
3: Joel, spoiler alert, wins. Russ's conviction was overturned and he was freed, which was huge.
0: And after all this, finally, Pam was eventually investigated and charged for Betsy's death. And she's given her not guilty plea. This is all ongoing, by the way. And she could stand trial. And she's currently serving a life sentence for the man she murdered, Louis Gumpenberger.
3: Yeah. And something that I just think I wanted to drop in here is that when I was talking to Russ, which we'll get to later in the episode, I asked him how she's doing in prison. And he said he heard she's a tutor, which... I don't know. I just
0: found curious. Of course she would be a tutor. <laughs> she thinks she's capable of truly everything, which clearly she's not. Also, I do want to point out that Pam being convicted of Lewis's murder and also, you know, being investigated for Betsy's murder sort of gave little cues and clues to people in her life about the death of her mother, Shirley Newman, in 2013. And Shirley fell off the balcony. And on Dateline, they did investigate, like, they did this whole thing about... You know, the weight of the uh, bars on the balcony, how she would have to fall, just doesn't pan out to be a natural fall. And people are suspecting that Pam might have allegedly had something to do with her own mother's death.
1: The St. Louis County Police, a different police force, investigated Shirley's death right after it happened. And they ruled in an accident. But was that really what happened?
3: After her mother's death, Pam got a payout of 130 grand, and you know, it's important to mention that this happened after Betsy's death. So, weirdly enough, there's actual tape of Pam talking to police about how she wouldn't kill Betsy because if she really wanted money,
0: she'd kill her own mother. <laughs> Which is truly, again, wild word of the day, because she is on tape saying that if she wanted a big payday, she would kill her mom, which is wild to say. But in Pam's mind, I'm assuming she's thinking, why would I commit this in her head petty crime when I could go for big bucks? So let's just take a listen to that. It's very fascinating.
4: And if I really hate to say it, wanted money, my mom's
1: worth a half a million that I get when she dies. My mom is dementia and
4: doesn't half the time know who we
2: are.
4: Right. And I know that sounds really morbid and stuff like that, but I am a life insurance person. If I really wanted money, there was an easier way than trying to combat somebody that's physically stronger than me. I'm just saying.
3: I'm just saying. (laughs) In the case of Pam's mom, Shirley, her case hasn't been reopened. So we can only speculate as to what really happened to her.
0: You know, I have fully gone down the Pam Hup rabbit hole, I have to admit. And Joanna, I told you the story, how I went to the Emmys for your consideration event for the thing about Pam. And what that is, it's basically like a panel with some of the cast members and some of the big names behind the scenes of a certain show. So this was for thing about Pam starts as a panel And after this panel, there's a reception for all of the Television Academy members who came to the event. And, um, you know, they're plus ones, which I was one of those. And it's trying to get people to really vote for the show. And let me tell you, if I were an Emmy voter, I would be voting. I was so jealous looking at your Instagram. (laughs) I know, and I felt bad because I wish you were there. And I will say... The most thrilling thing about this event was that Keith Morrison, who narrates the Hulu show, surprised the audience. I truly lost my mind. He is just, oh my God, I mean, a gem. I get so excited talking about him because he's that iconic. But I think that the thing about Pam and the thing about all of its iterations is that it toes the line between... Entertainment, fascination, and morbid curiosity.
3: I remember seeing, you know, on your Instagram these photo—I guess you call them like photo ops—where you could essentially do Pam Hub cosplay.
0: And they did have photo ops where you could sort of insert yourself into like photos with the entire cast. They had big gulps that you could drink your drinks out of at the bar. Um, they had like these mannequins and these white bean bags dressed like Pam. It was a full moment.
3: It's funny because we're saying in this episode it treats Pam like a character, but Pam is a murderer.
0: Right. Well, with that, we'll dive more into Pam's story and the people closest to it. And that's all next. So stay tuned.
4: You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Back in the day,
0: saying you liked Dateline was like saying you liked 60 Minutes or The Today Show. It simply wasn't a thing. Now, it's a descriptor. It means something.
4: I mean, like in Only Murders in the Building, they use it as a descriptor. She is, the Selena Gomez character, is somebody that, I think she does say, I fall asleep to Dateline or something to that effect. That's Lorraine
0: Ali. She's a TV critic for the Los Angeles Times.
4: Beforehand, it would almost be like saying you kind of watched your parents' news magazine. And it'd be like, yeah, why? But now it's like, oh, right, okay, we have a lot to talk about now. When Dateline changed its approach
0: from general interest to true crime, it also changed the way it formatted the show. Instead of packing in four or five features in an episode, they focused on one story— It let correspondents like Keith really go deep
4: in on a topic. And there's a lot of twists. And then going back and unwrapping it. And that's what makes it good. You know, you always know there's going to be that point in it when they're like, it's kind of like, dun-dun-dun-dun, or so they thought. And then commercial break, boom, when they come back, you know, they uncover, like, literally the smoking gun or whatever it is, yeah.
1: We just tell it as it happened the best we can. However, we don't give away the ending before the ending. And we allow the facts to kind of dribble out in hopefully approximately the same way they did in the course of an investigation or in the course of the case developing in the course of uh, what happened. This happened and then that happened and then the other thing happened. And as long as they are building towards some kind of narrative climax, then you've got a story.
0: Dateline stories often have all the trappings of a killer true crime story. The idyllic small town, the unassuming protagonist caught in the middle. A secret. And then it's exposed. It's not just the thing about Pam, but also Lori Vallow, the Mormon mother who believed two of her kids were zombies, or Tucker Reed, the community theater actress slash killer in the podcast Killer Role. There's something to these archetypes of Pam, of Lori, of Tucker. It's reminding us that criminals don't look a certain way, act a certain way. They could be hiding in plain sight. They could be driving your kid's carpool or greeting you in church on Sunday morning. I mention women because some of my favorite Dateline episodes are women who murder.
4: The whole idea of the Snap series is women are committing those crimes and often they're murders, And often they look like soccer moms. And it's the idea of wow, you know, this is someone who I don't even think would cut in front of me in line at the grocery store, yet she beheaded her lover and, you know, (laughs) killed his wife or whatever it was and stuffed him in the minivan and took her kids to school.
0: A couple months back, Joanna went to CrimeCon. That CrimeCon we mentioned earlier, where Keith Morrison was given the celebrity treatment. It's been around for a few years now, and as a spectacle listener, I'm sure you've either been to this or you're furiously making a note to book tickets to the next one. This last one was held in Las Vegas at the Bally's Hotel and Casino. Hosted by Oxygen, the three-day convention attracts a few thousand fans there to hear from criminal profilers like Candace DeLong, former prosecutor Nancy Grace, or Jean-Benet Ramsey's father, John Ramsey all while taking breaks to refill their wine or get another bottle of beer. Maybe buy some merch like a t-shirt that says, Catching Killers, Not Feelings. Since this is audio, can you tell me what your hat says? Um, this hat says, True Crime is my love language. People walk up to panelists like they're stars, asking for a photo, telling them how much they like them. It's at CrimeCon that Joanna ran into Russ Faria, the husband of the late Betsy Faria. What do you think about
3: the fascination with true crime, with cases like yours?
2: Well, I, I think uh, cases like mine, it could happen to anybody. I was just a normal guy going through my life, trying to take care of my family and make ends meet, just like most Americans. And all of a sudden, in a matter of hours, my life was turned upside down and everything was taken away and pulled out from underneath me. And I think people identify with that. If it could happen to me, it could happen to you or anybody else. And uh, so I think people are really concerned and they want to hear the story.
0: Crime Con rolled out the red carpet for Russ, as they should. He has an amazing story to tell. And the convention goers were clearly excited to see him. Not just in a morbidly curious way, they were concerned about him as a person.
3: You know, there are probably thousands of men and women who are wrongfully convicted right now and in prison who may not have that hope. Can you share how you were able to get through that? Yeah, I felt a genuine connection from the people in the crowd with your story like when your fiance came out she came up and gave you a kiss right the crowd like went crazy just felt like they were really genuinely happy for you i was just curious could you feel that energy and what was that like
2: oh it was great feeling that energy because i constantly like to talk about the fact that there is a silver lining to the cloud and I think everybody wants to know that there's a happy ending at the end of a, sometimes a bad story, you know, uh, or, or a nightmare, if you will.
0: His fiance is no stranger to Pam Hupp. Remember that day Pam went around impersonating Kathy? Well, before she picked up Lewis, she picked up Carol. Carol could smell something fishy, and she got out of that car and got away with her life. They have this in common. Being wronged, allegedly, by Pam Hupp. Russ did a panel with his attorney, Joel Schwartz. In it, they dropped clips of the Hulu show. Whenever Renee Zellweger playing Pam would come up, people would laugh. It was kind of odd to see them side by side. The fictionalized drama made for TV. And Russ and Joel living with the consequences of Pam's alleged actions. People laughed when they saw some of the clips. What's it been like to see that?
3: And like, how do you feel about this kind of phenomenon that's come out of your story?
2: Well, uh, the way I've described it folks is uh, I'm very happy with the way that I was portrayed. The actor uh, did a very fantastic job. And the comedy aspect of it, the people that you were laughing at in the show, acted more ridiculously in real life. Those are the people that aren't happy about the way they're being portrayed, and they should be happy because they're being portrayed better than they acted. And in that respect, they deserve to be laughed at.
0: Russ wants us to use his fame to get more attention to those who are wrongfully convicted. But it can't be easy. I can't imagine hearing that 911 call after he finds his wife's body. He's crying uncontrollably or seeing how the police interrogated him for 24 hours straight. That had to be hard
3: also to relive those moments. Like, what's it like? Because I'm sure you've had to do it again and again. But what's it been like for you to do that?
2: Well, it's difficult. I'm not going to lie. And, and, um, you know, PTSD is a real thing. And I, I deal with it on my terms, you know, because... I know I'm trying to do something for the greater good. So as I said in my panel, um, I choose my pain. And uh, if I have to go through a little bit of mental anguish to ensure that maybe somebody else doesn't have to go through what I did, then it's worth it.
0: There are still people who question Russ's innocence.
2: The main people that have publicly done so are the police officers and the former prosecutor. And they acted not, not just ineptly, but unethically and maliciously in their actions. And so, I'm coming for him. (laughs) I'm coming for him every way I can.
0: But there are people he was once close to, too. Like Betsy's mom and his stepdaughters who he raised. They don't speak. It's a reminder of what is both fascinating and problematic about our obsession with true crime. The stories told on our favorite TV shows, movies, and podcasts are so often the worst things to have ever happened to the people involved. And telling these stories in an engaging way that doesn't feel exploitative is really hard. When real people become compelling characters, we can't help but imagine them as living in a different world, a different universe than you and me. And at CrimeCon, that alternate universe was reinforced, seeing them on stage in front of 2,000 people. But sitting next to him in the VIP room, all of a sudden, he was just a guy. Next time on Spectacle. We're going to dig into the story of a phrase. It's defined crime reporting for more than a century. If it bleeds, it leaves. How does an obsession around violence hurt the people who consume it and the people who make it? One of my first jobs when I was a reporter in local news was to do very much that, what happened overnight. And what's often easy to report on that happened overnight is A bridge collapse, an accident, a a terrible shooting, a meth lab explodes. And the story of one of its victims, Christine Chubbuck. Christine Chubbuck was a
3: reporter at a TV station in Sarasota, Florida, who killed herself on air in 1974.
0: Christine's death. It became a moment to reflect on what this fascination with violent headlines is doing to the people who make this content. And to the people who consume it. And this grisly fascination isn't just a journalism thing or a TV thing. It's a U.S. thing. An American thing. More on that next week. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design by Hans Dale Shi. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Katherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.